What is going on, everybody? Welcome to A Thousand Cuts, a BSA podcast. I'm your host, Demetrius, here with my co-host, Glenn and Ashley. Y'all say what's up to the people. Let them know what's going on. What's up, people? What's going on, folks? What's going on? Tenth episode. Tenth episode. We made it, y'all. We official now. (laughs) That's all it took. I didn't know (laughs) (laughs) That's all it took just to get to the episode. (laughs) Yeah. We, ofi- we official y'all we are official but yeah we glad to be back with y'all another episode more bullshit going on in the world to cover so we just gonna jump right into it we're gonna go straight into national news so we got the biden administration's executive actions on gun violence on thursday april 8th the biden administration announced multiple executive actions that would possibly help stem the tide of mass shootings in the country this announcement followed in the wake of recent mass shootings in boulder colorado and atlanta georgia pressure from gun control activists and advocates also played a large role in getting movement on these actions from the administration a report from the washington post states that quote biden laid out several ways his administration will tackle gun violence He ordered action on ghost gun firearms without serial numbers that are sold in kits. He directed the Justice Department to draft a new rule regulating a device that can be placed on a pistol to turn it into a short-barreled rifle. He also instructed the Justice Department to create a template that states can use to enact red flag laws, which would allow judges to seize firearms from people who are deemed a threat to themselves or others. He ordered a repeat of the landmark 2000 gun trafficking study that was instrumental in helping police determine the source of guns used in crimes. The article goes on to say that even now Biden faces an uphill struggle to pass any new gun laws. The 50-50 Senate means that 10 Republicans would need to join all Democrats to pass gun restrictions since 60 votes are needed to pass most bills in the Senate. The country's largest pro-gun lobby, the National Rifle Association, is mired in multiple legal battles, but it remains influential among Republicans, of course. On Thursday, NRA officials referred to Biden's Rose Garden event as a circus on their official Twitter account and outlined their opposition to his moves. These actions could require Americans to surrender lawful property, push states to expand confiscation orders, and put a gun control lobbyist to head ATF, the official said. Biden is dismantling the Second Amendment. Anticipating this argument, Biden insisting that his moves are constitutional. The idea is just bizarre to suggest that some of the things we're recommending are contrary to the Constitution, Biden said. They didn't do Biden right. Come on, man. The idea is just bizarre to suggest that some of the things we're recommending are contrary to the Constitution, Biden said. Come on, man. Come on. (laughs) Let me stop. Alabama Amazon workers voting against unionization on Friday, April 9th. Workers at Amazon Warehouse located in Bessemer, Alabama, voted against unionizing their workplace. The margin was two to one with 738 votes in favor of unionizing and 1,798 votes against it. RWDSU Retail Wholesale and Department Store Union, under whom the workers attempted to organize, is planning to file objections claiming that Amazon violated labor laws in order to win. An article from The Verge states that, quote, another force working against unionizers is U.S. labor law, which gives employers broad leeway to promote an anti-union message in the workplace. 
Amazon had campaigned aggressively against the union in recent months, posting anti-RWDSU flyers in warehouse bathrooms and bombarding workers with targeted text messages. While organizers saw those tactics as fighting dirty, they're all within the bounds of current law. Our labor law is stacked against the people it's meant to protect, says Rebecca Collins, given an associate professor at Rutgers School of Management and Labor Relations. It's extremely hard for workers to organize a union and ridiculously easy for employers to bully them out of it. Tactics like captive audience meeting, in which employers force workers to attend anti-union workshops as part of their job, are particularly controversial among labor activists. Part of the problem is that the law gives the employer too much latitude to interfere, says Benjamin Sachs, Kinstbaum, professor of labor and industry at Harvard Law School. So the union can't challenge a lot of what Amazon did, like captive audience meetings, because the law is that the employer has the right to do that. Some are also pointing to tactical missteps made in the campaign. Organizers minimized house calls with workers because of the pandemic, instead focusing on reaching workers in the area immediately outside the warehouse. There was also significant confusion over the unit itself, with organizers underestimating the number of eligible workers by thousands in the early stages of the campaign. While the 1,060 vote margin might seem daunting, it's dwarfed by the thousands of in-unit workers who did not cast a ballot at all, whether because of indifference or intimidation. An article in the Washington Post says that, quote, Amazon's campaign against the organizing effort raised a public outcry and galvanized support for the union even before the 1,798 to 738 vote on Friday. Amazon bombarded workers with anti-union messages under the slogan, do it without dues, through text messages, signs in bathroom stalls, and mandatory meetings at the warehouse. Amazon also successfully petitioned the county to change the stoplight patterns in front of its facility in what some workers said was a bid to make it harder to organize. It had the U.S. Postal Service install an unmarked mailbox at the facility in the midst of the election, something the union said could prompt workers to think Amazon would count their votes. It also put up a website that said all workers would have to pay dues in Alabama, a state where that isn't required with unionized employers. An unnamed worker filed an unfair labor practices complaint to the National Labor Relations Board over the website. The union said it plans to file another about the mailbox, saying it sent a misleading message to workers about the election process. Anyone who has ever tried to make a change at their workplace is surprised by Amazon's behavior, said Beth Allen, communications director for Communication Workers of America, which helped workers at Alphabet, Google's parent company, launch a minority union in January. Amazon has defended its approach to the union organizing effort. Company spokeswoman Heather Cox said it will impact everyone at the site, and it's important all associates understand what that means for them and their day-to-day life working at Amazon. Amazon has said the mailbox provides a convenient way for workers to vote and that the website was an educational site to help employees understand the facts about joining a union. Allen, like other labor advocates, said the experience made clear that action from Washington has become necessary. Many Democrats, including the president, are pushing for the Senate to pass the PRO Act, which would overhaul the country's labor laws to give workers more leverage when organizing. The bill will create harsher penalties for companies that violate laws protecting worker activism, allow gig workers to potentially form unions, and outlaw some of the coercive anti-union activity that many companies, including Amazon, have employed in the face of union drives. So now on to anti-trans legislation in Arkansas. In a span of three weeks, the state of Arkansas has passed three anti-trans bills. 
These bills will ban doctors from performing gender affirming health care for trans youth, which is Bill HB 1570, which is called the Save Adolescents from Experimentation or SAFE Act, and prevent trans youth from playing school sports, which is Bills SB 354 and SJR 16. Due to feeling that their livelihoods are being threatened, trans people in the state are now preparing to leave. These actions taken by the government of Arkansas are part of a nationwide assault on trans people's freedom and ability to thrive. Over 28 states in the U.S. have passed anti-trans legislation. Some of these states are Arkansas, Alabama, Arizona, Connecticut, Georgia, Florida, Iowa, Indiana, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Minnesota, Mississippi, Missouri, Montana, New Hampshire, North Dakota, Oklahoma, Ohio, South Dakota, Tennessee, Utah, Texas, of course, West Virginia. These bills feature actions such as not allowing trans people and youth access to medications such as HRT, which is a hormone replacement therapy, and puberty blockers, laws stating that doctors could face a decade of prison time for providing health care, and banning trans people from engaging in scholastic sports. So now we are going to go over to international news. All right, and I'll be going over that. So first in international news, we have the French military test Boston Dynamics robot dog spot in combat scenarios. Recently, the French military tested out Boston Dynamics, a robotics and engineering company located in Massachusetts, in two combat exercises on a simulated battlefield. An article from The Verge reports that during the two-day deployment, OS France says soldiers ran a number of scenarios, including an offensive action capturing crossroads, defensive actions during night and day, and an urban combat test. Each scenario was performed using just humans and then using humans and robots together to see what difference the machines made. Sources quoted in the article say that the robots slowed down operations but helped keep troops safe. During the urban combat phase where we weren't using robots, I died. But I didn't die when we had the robot do a reset first. One soldier is quoted as saying, they added that one problem was Spot's battery life. It apparently ran out of juice during an exercise and had to be carried out. It's not clear what role Spot was playing. Neither Shark Robotics nor Ecole de saint Sir had replied to requests for comment at the time of writing. But OS France suggested it was being used for reconnaissance. The 70-pound Spot 31 kilogram is equipped with cameras and can be remote controlled with its forelegs, allowing it to navigate terrain that would challenge wheeled or traded robots. To date, it's been used to remotely survey a number of environments from construction sites to factories and underground mines. In addition to SPOT, other machines being tested by the French military include Optio X-20, a remote-controlled vehicle with tank treads and auto cannon built by Estonian firm Melrum Robotics, Ultro, a wheeled robot mule made for carrying equipment built by French state military firm Nexter, and Barracuda, a multi-purpose wheel drone that can provide mobile cover to soldiers with attached armor plating. The article continues to say that Spot's appearance on simulated battlefields raises questions about where the robot will be deployed in future. Boston Dynamics has a long history of developing robots for the U.S. Army, but as it's moved into commercial for military connections, Spot is being tested by a number of U.S. police forces, including by the NYPD, but Boston Dynamics has always stressed that its machines will never be armed. We unequivocally do not want any customer using a robot to harm people, says Perry. Spot's terms and conditions forbid it from being used to harm or intimidate any person or animal as a weapon or to enable any weapon. And it's possible to argue that a robot helping the scout buildings for soldiers is not technically harming or intimidating anyone. 
But if that recon is the prelude to a military engagement, it seems like a flimsy distinction. Boston Dynamics Perry told The Verge that the company had clear policies forbidding suppliers or customers from weaponizing the robot, but that the firm is still evaluating whether or not to ban non-weaponized deployments by military customers. We think that the military, to the extent that they do use robotics to take people out of harm's way, we think that's a perfectly valid use of the technology, says Perry. With this forward deployment model that you're discussing, it's something we need to better understand to determine whether or not it's actively being used to harm people. Despite worries from the researchers and advocates, militaries around the world are increasingly pushing robots onto the battlefield. Remotely operated drones have been the most significant deployment to date, but other use cases, including robots that can scout, survey, and patrol, are also being tested. Robotic quadrupeds, similar to Spot, built by a rival firm Ghost Robotics, are currently being tested by the U.S. Air Force as replacements for stationary surveillance cameras. If robots prove reliable as Roman CCTV, it's only a matter of time before their capabilities are introduced to active combat zones. Next, French government votes to ban wearing the hijab for minors. The Senate of France recently passed an amendment that would make it illegal for Muslim young women under the age of 18 to wear their hijab in public. This amendment is a part of an anti-separatism bill that's supposed to curb Islamic radicalism and terrorism in the nation. Experts claim there is no chance that it will become an official law. These amendments were created by France's Conservative Party in an attempt to win back voters that they lost to the xenophobic far-right party, the National Rally. The Muslim community of France feels that this is a systemic attack on their religious liberty. A report from Al Jazeera states, the National Assembly Chamber, which is dominated by President Emmanuel Macron, centrist La Republic in March, L-A-R-E-M party, voted overwhelmingly in favor of the bill on February 16th, before it was passed up to the Conservative-led Senate. The legislation has been debated in a highly charged atmosphere in France after three attacks late last year, including the beheading on October 16th of teacher Samuel Paddy, who has shown his students caricatures of the Prophet Muhammad during a lesson on free speech. The law does not specifically mention the word Islam, but French Muslims have for months protested against it, saying several of his measures singled him out. Amnesty International last month warned the proposed law polls a serious attack on rights and freedoms in France and called for many problematic provisions of the bill to be scrapped or amended. Next in international news, indigenous Australians protest against police abuse. Over 1,500 Australian citizens protested the deaths of indigenous people in police custody. Since 1991, over 474 Aboriginal and Torres Strait people have died in the carceral system. Indigenous Australians are a quarter of the prison population, but only make up 2.4% of the total population. Indigenous Australian youth are 17 times more likely to be detained than non-Indigenous youth. Indigenous Australian adults are 13 times more likely to be jailed than non-Indigenous adults. A report from MSM News states that David Dungay Jr. was just weeks away from release when he died in Long Bay Jail in December 2015. The 26-year-old was eating Tim Tams in his cell when a guard ordered him to stop and he refused. The corrective services officers then ordered Dungay be moved into a different cell with CCTV and armed guards were called in to perform a cell extraction. According to the incident report published by the NSW Health Department, Dungay died during a use of physical restraint and rapid tranquilization in an inpatient mental health unit. The cause of death was unascertained. His death had parallels with that of George Floyd in the United States. He was held down by prison officials and said, I can't breathe before he died. His mother, Latanya Dungay, told the crowd of protesters she is still waiting for justice. No more royal commissions. We want justice. Keep fighting until we live in a country where Black Lives Matter, Ms. Dungay said. 
Greens MP David Shoebridge also spoke on the steps of Town Hall, passionately telling the rallies, something's riding in Australia. There's an outpouring of grief for a man who died on the other side of the world while hundreds of First Nations people are being killed in Australia, Mr. Shoebridge said. He said a key recommendation from the Royal Commission has been ignored as hanging points remains in jails. Mr. Shoebridge called for an independent investigation of each death in custody. The speeches made at the protests were filled with emotion. Sick of hearing about racism? I'm sick of talking about it. Are you angry? Because I am, one speaker told the crowd. Protesters stopped for a minute's silence near Hyde Park, remembering those who have died in custody and shouted for police to take a seat. Large photographs of those who have died held aloft by their family members. Rallies were held in other capital cities around Australia today, including Brisbane and Melbourne. And that concludes the international news. All right. All right. Thank you for that, Glenn. Now we're going to pass it off to a comrade, Ashley, for our new segment, the Eco Update with Ashley with a comrade and biologist. See, we flexing over here at A Thousand Cuts. Got brilliant black women on the fucking podcast, motherfuckers, okay? (laughs) So it's the Eco Update with Ashley. She's going to be giving us environmental and ecological news. Again, we wanted to do this in accordance with our social ecologist and eco-socialist principles as an organization. So we're going to get into it. Ashley, what you got for us today? All right, today we have two global studies here. The first is coming out of Curtin University in Perth, actually, while we're on Australian news. The study calls for urgent climate change action to secure global food supply. New Curtin University-led research has found climate change will have a substantial impact on global food production and health if no action is taken by consumers, food industry, government, and international bodies. Published in the Annual Review of Public Health, the researchers completed a comprehensive 12-month review of published literature on climate change, healthy diet, and actions needed to improve nutrition and health around the world. Lead researcher Professor Colin Binns of the Curtin School of Public Health said climate change has had detrimental impact on health and food production in the past 50 years, and far more needs to be done to overcome its adverse effects. The combination of climate change and the quality of nutrition is the major public health challenge of this decade, and indeed this century. Despite positive advances in the world nutrition rates, we're still facing the ongoing threat of climate change to global food supply, with sub-Saharan Africa and part of Asia most at risk. For the time being, it will be possible to produce enough food to maintain adequate intakes using improved farming practices and technology and more equity and distribution, but we estimate that by 2050, world food production will need to increase by 50% to overcome present shortages and meet the needs of growing populations. So this isn't news to any of us, I don't think, but this study just outlines the need to create more sustainable food development goals, especially in developing regions where food supplies are more scarce than maybe say North America. The review recommends that by following necessary dietary guidelines and choosing foods that have low environmental impacts, such as fish, whole grain, cereals, fruits, vegetables, legumes, nuts, berries, and olive oil, we could improve health, help reduce greenhouse gases, and meet the UN Sustainable Development Goals, which in turn would improve food production levels in the future. While climate change will have a significant effect on global food supply and political commitment, Substantial investment could go some way to reduce the effects and help provide the foods needed to achieve sustainable development goals. 
Some changes will need to be made to food production, nutrient content will need monitoring, and more equitable distribution will be required to meet the proposed dietary guidelines. It's also important to increase breastfeeding rates to improve infant and adult health while helping to reduce greenhouse gases and benefit the environment, Professor Bin said. Ongoing research will be vital to assessing the long-term impacts of climate change on food supply and health in order to adequately prepare for the future. The second um, study that I have in here is specifically focusing on dengue outbreaks in Brazil. Can I just comment on that real quick? Yeah, please. It's, it's just fascinating how capital, I've always said that capitalism is an Ouroboros. It, it is a serpent that's consuming itself, that's eating its own tail. Capitalism destroys the very conditions that allows it to exist, right? So if people aren't essentially what I mean by that, not to make it too abstract and fucking or, or whatever, is essentially that, I mean, if motherfuckers can't eat, you know what I mean? If people can't eat, they don't have the energy to work. You have no laborers. How are you going to work if, if people can't feed themselves, you know? So, right. I mean, yeah. I mean, everyone, yeah. obviously we're preaching to the choir here, but everyone has a basic right of surviving and having accessible nutritional food. And it's pretty, you know, crazy. The study basically is just outlining that, like, I think the most important part is the distribution and the equity involved in nutritional food. It right, clearly right. has a huge dichotomy there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Sorry. I just wanted to comment on that a bit, but you can go ahead to your next pieces. Okay. So this also does, of course, because it's BSA podcast, this has to do with inequity and like how that's going to affect your susceptibility to disease. Brazil at high risk of dengue outbreaks after droughts because temporary water storage. Governments must invest in adequate water storage systems to reduce mosquito habitats. This is from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. The research was led by the London School of Hygiene Tropical Medicine, LSHTM, the Center for Climate Change and Planetary Health, and the Center of Mathematical Monitoring of Infectious Diseases. Using advanced statistical modeling techniques, the team predicted the timing and intensity of dengue risk in Brazil from extreme weather patterns. The risk of dengue was high in urban areas three to five months after extreme drought. Extremely wet conditions increased dengue risk in the same month and up to three months later. Dengue fever is caused by a virus carried by mosquitoes and is considered one of the top 10 threats to global health. Brazil is the greatest number of dengue cases in the world, reporting more than 2 million cases of dengue in 2019 alone. Increasing levels of severe droughts and flooding episodes due to climate change has led to interruptions in water supply networks in Brazil and impoverished water storage containers used to combat these interruptions has become a breeding ground for mosquitoes. Dr. Rachel Lowe of LSHTM, who led the study, said, The dengue situation in Brazil is extremely concerning. Our work highlights that risk is not only related to extreme weather, but also linked to poor water management systems and human behavior in densely populated urban areas. In Brazil, large dengue outbreaks are typically observed after wet and warm periods, and most interventions are targeted at those times. No studies have previously determined exact timeframes for dengue outbreaks following extreme weather events like droughts and floods across a large and diverse geographical area, although this work confirms initial findings from Barbados. In this study, 
the team combined dengue case data in 558 regions of Brazil between January 2001 and 2019 for information on droughts and wet conditions to assess the dengue risk differences in urban and rural areas. The results suggesting dengue interventions should be timed appropriately in poor service urban areas or not only implemented during wet and warm season. So a more integrative approach throughout the year and focused on poor, poorly serviced urban areas. In the short term, these include eliminating breeding sites around the home to prevent additional mosquito larval habitats during drought periods. During wet periods, outdoor water storage containers should be well covered and maintained, and discarded waste should be cleared to avoid collecting water. Dr. Lowe said it's imperative that governments invest in local infrastructure to ensure permanent water supply and promote environmental hygiene in areas prone to epidemics of mosquito-borne diseases. This study carries some limitations as the dengue data was obtained from the passive surveillance system where only a fraction of cases are laboratory confirmed and mild or asymptomatic cases are not accounted for. What do you guys think about that? Well, I'm depressed. <laughs> Two million cases? Oh, dude. Yes, that's a lot going on. That's the thing that <laughs> it's just to me as well, because like you take into account how we've lived through a, a global pandemic for a year now, and then you have so much other stuff going on. Oh, the yeah. Like, <laughs> like consistently, it's like we have so many artificial concerns that are created by our social system. It's like if we get shit together, it's not like we're not going to have things to contend with. You know, we really need to get our shit together on a collective whole so that we can really start to mitigate as much crisis as possible. Yeah, that's, uh, it's just, we have the ability, the capabilities, the technology to be more efficient, to structure things. I know it's something that Bookchin talks about, and even going back to Marx and Engels talk about, it's just the irrationality of the capitalist system and just the irrationality of just living in a hierarchical class society in general. Like we have the capabilities to make more rational, more consistent, more logical, scientifically sound decisions when it comes to how we're going to structure our systems, how we're going to set up our systems, but we just don't do it. Ash, did you have one more story? Yeah, let's do one more story. Glenn's kind of pushing me to do this, but it's going to be, you know, they're getting a little dark. And I think this segment's going to be pretty depressing for everybody because doom is kind of imminent. Like you said, this is the outcome of our capitalist system. So if we don't change the means of how things are distributed and more equitable applications in society, we're going down a pretty slippery slope as far as environmentalism is concerned. AKA pay close attention because this is the fire on the ass that we really need to get moving because it's already looking like we don't have a lot of time but i do think that there's a good chance we can reverse some of these things if we put in the effort but it's going to be a real collective effort like we've never seen before absolutely yeah we can only hope for some sort of collective action because this is going to affect all of us this one is with regards to something called the doomsday glacier unsettling currents warm water flowing beneath doomsday glacier Data from underneath Thwaites Glacier, also known as the Doomsday Glacier. For the first time, researchers have been able to obtain data from underneath Thwaites Glacier. They find that the supply of warm water to the glacier is larger than previously thought, triggering concerns of faster melting and accelerating ice flow. With the help of uncrewed submarine RAN that made its way under Thwaites Glacier, 
environmental researchers have made a number of new discoveries. Professor Karen Haywood of the University of East Anglia commented, this was Rand's first venture to polar regions and her exploration of the water under the ice shelf was much more successful than we had dared to hope. We plan to build on these exciting findings with further missions under the ice next year. The submersible has, among other things, measured the strength, temperature, salinity, and oxygen content of the ocean currents that go under the glacier. Global sea level is affected by how much ice there is on land, and the biggest uncertainty is the forecast. In the forecast is the future evolution of the West Antarctic ice sheet, says Anna Whalen professor of oceanography at the University of Gothenburg and lead author of the new study now published in Science Advances. Impacts on global sea level and overview. The ice sheet in West Antarctica accounts for about 10% of the current rate of sea level rise, but also in the ice in West Antarctica holds the most potential for increasing that rate because the fastest changes worldwide are taking place in the Thwaites Glacier. Due to its location and shape, the Thwaites, or Doomsday Glacier, is particularly sensitive to warm and salty ocean currents that are finding their way underneath it. This process can lead to an accelerated... Sorry, my cat's freaking out down here. This process can lead to an accelerated melting taking place at the bottom of the glacier and an inland movement of the so-called grounding zone, which is an area where the glacial ice transitions from resting on the seabed to floating in the ocean. Due to its inaccessible location far from the research stations in an area that is usually blocked by thick sea ice and many icebergs, there has been a great shortage of in-situ movements from this area. This means that there are big knowledge gaps from the ice-ocean boundary processes in this region. The researchers presented the results from the submersible that measured strength, temperature, salinity, and oxygen content of the ocean currents that go under the glacier. These were the first measurements ever performed beneath Thwaites Glacier. The results have been used to map the ocean currents underneath the floating part of the glacier. The research group has also measured the heat transport in one of the three channels that lead warm water towards Thwaites Glacier from the north. The channels for warm water to access and attack Thwaites weren't known to us before this research. Using sonars on the ship, we were able to find that there are distinct paths that water takes in and out of the ice shelf cavity, influenced by the geometry of the ocean floor, says Dr. Alistair Graham of University of Southern Florida. The researchers also noted that large amounts of meltwater flowed north away from the front of the glacier. The area under the glacier is a previously unknown active area where different water masses meet and mix together, which is important for understanding the melting processes at the base of the ice. The observations show warm water approaching from all sides on pinning points, critical locations where the ice is connected to the seabed and gives stability to the critical ice shelf. Melting around these pinpoints may lead to instability and retreat of the ice shelf and subsequently the upstream glacier flowing off of the land. Dr. Rob Larder of British Antarctic Survey commented, this work highlighted that how and where warm water impacts Thwaites Glacier is influenced by the shape of the seafloor and the ice shelf base, as well as the properties of the water itself. 
the successful integration of new seafloor survey data and observations of water properties in the RAN missions shows the benefits of the multidisciplinary ethos within the International Thwaites Glacier Collaboration. The good news is that we are now, for the first time, collecting data that is necessary to model the dynamics of Thwaites Glacier. This data will help us better calculate ice melting in the future. With the help of this new technology, we can improve the models and reduce the great uncertainty that now prevails around the global sea level variation, says Anna Whalen. So, you know, I mean, we're just getting now to these critical, critical points and environmental changes. And we also are on the brink of these new technologies being able to quantify what sort of threats we have coming towards us. Thank you for covering that, actually. I think it's really important that we really get into the, the global scale issues, as we've seen with this pandemic and have experienced firsthand every single one of us. We live in a global society, and if we're not really doing our calculus for all of the different dynamics that we have to encounter and deal with as a global society, from the glacial ice melt to the spread of different pathogens and viruses and things like that, like it's, it's going to be very critical for us to being able to capture the, the information we need to proceed effectively, you know. But I think it's also important, and I think some of these scientists and stuff, unfortunately, they get a little carried away in their work. In the technocratic sense, technology is great and it's useful, but it is simply a tool. And, you know, the, the way we use it is definitely going to be important. And the way we allow the information that can be strewn from it to help us to inform just how drastic the, the measures we may need to take in order to be able to upend some of the, the processes that are causing a lot of this runoff and a lot of these accelerating issues that we have to contend with moving into the future. Yeah, absolutely. That was, we needed that. That was, despite how depressing it can be, that was a sober reminder that we need to take action immediately for the sake of the species and every other species on the planet. For me in particular, what scares me about the future is like antibacterial solutions that we create is that bacteria are like evolving resistance against it. That to me is I don't know why, like that thing in particular just frightens the fuck out of me. So we have to get on the ball. We have to use these technologies in a liberatory manner. And we're just going to really need global solidarity when it comes to this stuff, because we are all as a species going to have to try to get on the same page. And I don't know how the fuck that is going to happen with so much division and strife. But I mean, systems of domination and exploitation have done their work on that. They have done so much work globally to just drive a wedge between all of us to where we cannot get on the same page and be like, look, like all this class shit, this race shit, this gender shit, the fake countries, nation states that we live in. This is just driving a wedge between us. And the reality of the situation is that we are fucking up our planet. As a social ecologist like to say, our ecological problems stem from our social problems. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the solutions are. I, I, Ashley, I don't know. I don't know. You the scientists here. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, no, you made me think of two things. So, yeah, I was going to say exactly what you said about national boundaries. Like, the way that we can do this and not turn it into a Mad Max scenario where we're pitted against each other as the citizens of various, you know, nations, nation states is that you provide class consciousness globally, because if not, I can see it being a scenario where national boundaries encourage you to hoard the resources that you have there. 
and it'll just be a trips fall where they may, you know, based on how close you are to the equator or how close you are to a coastline or places that experience increasingly catastrophic environmental events, storms, tsunamis, flood out, all of these things, like I said in the first story, affecting food supply. That's going to be huge. And then the antibacterial thing that can also tie into this glacial melting. Again, not not the most positive thing, but like as the glaciers melt, they've been finding that the trapped gases from prehistoric times being released and also viruses and pathogens, different types of bacteria that's unstudied to us because it's been inside ice for millions of years are getting released. So that's potentially something that will get to deal with later on. I'm not sure how that's going to work, but... Yay! Yay! I'll awesome! Yay! Yeah. <laughs> oh, Sorry. Fuck. I'm going to include in the future some more positive things like you know, communities working together and supporting one another and mutual aid, like we've talked about many times. That is happening and that's something we should focus on. Oh yeah, absolutely. Don't don't ever get it twisted from the news. Our news segments are always gonna be very honed in on things that we feel people need to respond to. But yeah, there's always gonna be tons of like beautiful things that we can touch note on. Like I mean even in my local area, there are folks who are making arrangements to help shuttle people to get vaccines and things like that. So there, there's all sorts of mutual aid going on in the margins of a lot of the different crises. And people say this often, but it's like what Mr. Rogers said, right? You know, you gotta look for the helpers. And if you can't find those helpers, shit, you can be one. Nothing stopping you. The great queer revolutionary Mr. Rogers. Now let me start. <laughs> <laughs> I think he was bisexual, I believe. They don't tell you that. They don't tell you that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, this has been great. He has a statement about how he was attracted to both men and women at different times in his life. So, yeah, and he was very casual about it. I'm sure you know how he talked, you know, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I could be with a man or a woman. It just depends on. Where I am in the neighborhood. <laughs> anyway, that was awesome. Our first eco update with Ashley. Very depressing, but we will try to put some more positive stuff out there. But we got to know the nature of the threat. That's just mm -hmm. the reality of the situation. I just wanted to touch on one thing before we move away from the segment a little bit, just because it was mentioned about how dynamics are changing with regards to the climate, but also with regards to politics. I saw a clip the other day, Kamala Harris, and she was talking about how, you know, for generations, people have fought wars for oil and stuff, and like how we're moving into where the wars are not going to be fought for water. And it's just like, yeah, Fuck. a lot of us have known this for a long time. But the fact yeah. that the, the VP is now actively using that in their messaging as they go around and talk to different groups, like, definitely a threat to be heated uh, when it's coming from those different, you know, conduits of power and such. So, yeah, Glenn, yeah. that was shocking to see because, yeah, like you said, we all know that this is pretty much going to be the conclusion of what's happening to us now. And in some places, it's already the reality that you're struggling for clean water. But for her to say that kind of casually is like holy shit what are you gonna do about it as the vice president like this is where i completely lose patience with them and this is again something we've talked about a bunch of times but they state this obvious shit as if they don't have any power to change it <laughs> or or any skin in the game like they they really go about this shit like 
they're just so above it all and they're just kind of be you know moving around ponds and shit and yeah it's, it's very imperative that we find ways to help break people away from the different propaganda that will radicalize them towards being jingoistic and nationalistic and get people more in line with thinking of ways that they can engage with their communities and begin to defend and you know fortify their communities to be prepared for the different crises that the different states are going to try to exacerbate and take advantage of and state actors mm-hmm. yeah yeah abs- absolutely that shit is fucking jarring it's like, yeah in the future we're gonna be fighting for water it's gonna be y'all niggas fighting for water we're gonna be on our fucking like fucking airships for rich people like the rich people gonna live above us on some fucking what was that movie with matt damon what was the name of that sci-fi movie where oh, the planet uh, you know what i'm talking about Elysium, yeah, yeah. yeah, they live on Elysium. It's a whole mm-hmm. nother like fake planet or whatnot where all the rich people live there and everybody else who's like poor, like is down on the planet. That that's just gonna be, bro, or it's gonna be some like Yeah, that's them that's them technocratic solutions, you know. They're gonna be living in the air, like on a country, but it's like an airship sort of some sci-fi shit living above like the flooded planet and post like complete climate collapse on some fucking like what's that shit from Ayn Rand Gulch all the rich people leave and shit that's what they're trying to plan bro that's what they're trying to plan that was a thing that was the thing we're gonna fly off in our spaceships while everybody else dies from climate change I don't put it past them bro I don't put it past them no but yeah it's the, the, the other thing I wanted to comment on was the prophetic nature of the show Black Mirror uh, what we're talking about when we were reporting in the news segment here about the Boston Dynamics dog spot. There's a episode of uh, the show Black Mirror. Please do not watch the most recent seasons because they're trash. But there was an episode where it was like post-apocalyptic and they had these robot dogs who were like chasing down this woman who was a thief or whatnot. And the part that stood out to me from what we read in the article, let me just read this. To date, it's been used to remotely survey a number of environments from construction sites to factories and underground mines. Those are basically workplaces. So we could be possibly seeing the evolution of anti-labor, anti-union, collective bargaining like techniques. Now we're going to have robots fucking patrolling people at work. And it's something that Amazon is already doing, right? They're already using an AI system to track employees' productivity rates like down to the second and fucking like clocking them for off task time. You know what I mean? Which could be anything like taking a piss, washing your hands, taking a quick breather because you just packed up so many boxes an hour because Amazon's productivity rates are fucking ridiculous. Their standards are insane. I mean, they're already doing this oh, shit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that's, the, that's, that's a big part of it, no doubt. I mean, March 29th, they dropped a new video for Meat Stretch, prototype of their new robot designed to automate box moving tasks in warehouses and distribution centers. So, I mean, it's very clear. It's not even like there's any like false pretense to it. They're actively making these things to service the needs for these these major distribution centers and stuff like that. Because that you know those are like the key places of labor right now. And you know, given everything that happened in Bessemer, you know, it's it's very clear the the way that they're planning to operate. You know, they're going to continue to squash labor rights. They're going to continue to squash any efforts for people to be able to hold on to any any semblance of you know a union or any type of organizing structure that allows them to maintain their 
livelihoods with decent benefits and pay. No, they, they can't have any kind of opposition to what the plan is because ultimately they want to replace us. They want to replace all needs for human labor by being able to, you know, have these automatons come in and fulfill pretty much whatever they need in order to maintain their, you know, their ability to be at the top. So. Hey man, player yeah. piano, Kurt Vonnegut. I talked about it before, man. They are, they trying to automate us out, man. Yeah. It's and it's crazy. It, in the meantime, in the process of automating us out, it's just a severe exploitation of labor, you know, because you have no leverage in that. It's like either you want the job or you'll be replaced. And that allows them to give you these really fucked up working conditions where you have no other option. And yeah, you guys were talking about the horrific Amazon stories that have come out recently. And there have been responses, not really in our circles, but other circles of people just, oh, you know, why don't you just get another job as if that's the easiest thing in the world to do. And as if these people like have better options than to be freaking wage slaves in the Amazon distribution factories. Yeah, this shit is ridiculous. It's just more and more. I was watching an interview with Murray Bookchin. It's a great interview. It's called Reflections of a Revolutionary. And part of it, he was talking about just like the invasion of commodification, the encroachment of capital into just every nook and cranny of our fucking lives. You know what I'm saying? Every second, every minute, just being just slurped up by capital, the factory, the office place, the workplace, it has encroached into every single sector of our lives, even in our thoughts, even in our internal life, the way that we think, the language that we use, it's fucking crazy. It's, it's fucking crazy. It's really jarring. And, and this shit is just further example of it. the day when fucking robot canines are patrolling the workplace. So when you get off task, you might have had a burrito for lunch and you got a cold brown. Nah, man, you can't do that because you got fucking robo dog here. Nah, man, you got to get back on the product line. If not, you getting fired or I might shoot your ass. It just depends. I mean, it's crazy. It really is. It really is. But yeah, this has been a great news segment, a bit of a downer, but we're going to get into the main topic. We're going to be talking about black people's relationship with democracy or rather a lack of a relationship with democracy. We're going to be talking about these Georgia voting laws. So I'm going to be reading a bit from a uh, opinion article from MSNBC called Georgia's new voting laws are all the evidence we need for federal voting rights protections. So I'm just going to read a bit of this and, and we're going to jump into the larger conversation here. It says in 2013, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg predicted with prescient clarity what is happening right now in Georgia. Ginsburg knew then when the Supreme Court threw out half of the landmark 1965 Voting Rights Act that it will be open season for voter suppression in states previously covered under the act. And here we are facing that reality with a sweeping and unquestionably restrictive new voting law passing on a party line vote in Georgia late last week. It came near months after President Joe Biden won Georgia's electoral votes and after Democrats John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock. Shout out to Raphael Warnock, the Christian socialist, the Christian democratic socialist and pastor doing his thing. OK, let me stop. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to him. Shout out to him. I'm sorry. I, I had a little Christian commie moment. Please forgive me. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> Raphael Warnock won runoff elections for the U.S. Senate in Georgia. Now two big lawsuits are being brought in Georgia, both to challenge that voting law. Both suits were filed in federal court. The first suit was filed by the New Georgia Project and other organizations. And the second suit was filed by the NAACP. 
along with other organizations, and both allege that Georgia's law violates the remaining portion of the Voting Rights Act, Section 2, which guards against voting laws that discriminate on account of race, color, or membership in a language minority group. They also argue that the law amounts to unconstitutional discrimination. To name just a few changes we will see under Georgia's new law, voters have less time to apply for and request vote-by-mail ballots. Anyone who wants to request a vote-by-mail ballot will have to face new voter ID requirements. The state and localities are now prohibited from sending vote-by-mail ballot applications unless they have been requested. The law also limits the number of ballot drop boxes and requires that they be inside early voting sites and only accessible during certain days and times. Another highly publicized aspect of the new law bars people from being able to give food and water to voters within 150 feet of a polling place. The law does expand early voting on weekends, but an earlier version of the law would have restricted such voting. Finally, the law also empowers state officials to take over local election boards. Democrats fear that Republican state officials will use this as an opportunity to intervene in local election boards controlled by Democrats. Biden didn't mince any words when he called Georgia's new election law sick, un-American, and despicable, concluding that Georgia's law amounted to Jim Crow in the 21st century. Former Democratic gubernatorial candidate and current voting rights activist Stacey Abrams referred to the laws as Jim Crow 2.0. Biden's point and the point of many critics of Georgia's law is that it was passed not just to minimize Republican voting power, but also to burden and compromise African-American voting power. Jim Crow laws are state and local laws that disempowered, disenfranchised, and segregated African-Americans. Some of the laws that led to the disenfranchisement of countless African-Americans were literacy tests and poll taxes. The law that finally helped wipe out these restrictive voting laws was a federal one, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Yes, the same federal law that the Supreme Court partially trashed in 2013. But how can Georgia's law be justified? The answer is the way these restrictive laws are always justified, on unfounded claims of voter fraud. Just a quick note here. I can't remember the exact percentage, but there is a exact percentage for the amount of voter fraud. Voter fraud is infinitesimally small. Like it's insane, like to the point where it just basically doesn't even fucking happen. In general, Americans don't vote like that anyway. Our voter participation in the States is fucking pathetic compared to many other Western countries. It's trash. So, okay, let me keep reading. Quick spoiler alert. No widespread voter fraud was found in Georgia or elsewhere. If the only way you think you can win is to make it harder to vote, we have a problem. Since Democrats have been successful under Georgia's current set of election laws, Republicans appear to believe that the way to ensure they can once again win political campaigns is to change the laws to be more restrictive. The legitimate outcome of these two cases is still to be determined, but we never should have been here in the first place, and at least two things should have prevented this law from ever passing. First, Georgia's lawmakers never should have passed this law. If politicians want to win elections, they should make the best policy arguments to voters, not try to suppress votes to pick their voters. Second, we know that politicians will often try to maximize power, and this can trample on voters' rights. This is the very reason so many people fought so hard for the Voting Rights Act in the first place. The act should have stood as a federal guardrail against these types of restrictions. There are two potential solutions before us. First, courts should put some teeth into what remains of the Voting Rights Act and prevent other states from following in Georgia's footsteps. Second, Georgia's new voting law provides all the evidence we need for new federal voting rights protections. There is currently pending legislation passed by the House that would do just that. It's time for the Senate to act. 
In the meantime, the best way to safeguard our democracy is to take part in it. Vote however you can, even if it means standing in a long line and bringing your own water, blah, 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 electoral bullshit. Another part of this that I want to talk about is the fact that, so when the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, signed this bill in his office, there is a painting in the background of a plantation. And a woman by the name of Kimberly Wallace, while she was watching the news, saw that painting. And she was like, hey, that plantation, which apparently is called the Callaway Plantation, was where my ancestors worked for generations. <laughs> so there's that. There's also the fact that a, a state representative, Park Cannon, she's a black woman, was arrested and was given a felony obstruction. She was arrested Thursday night after protesting the bill. She got arrested while knocking on Kemp's office door. Yeah, well, let me stop here and, and let me get y'all takes on things right now. Oh, it takes. Oh, man. This is just dark. I mean, from this plantation photo that the voter, these laws prohibiting, like even more restricting the prevalence of voting in Georgia, a southern state where like if there's any voter suppression at, of, at all, it's in urban minority communities. I don't really know what to say because this is something that we were working towards in the past year and was looking really positive and how this has happened. Yeah, I don't really know where we go from here. Well, one place that we can go is to black capitalists, is to the Twitter, the black Twitter LLC crowd. That's who is going to save us, y'all. That is who is going to save us. I want to read this a little bit. We got some to come from the New York Times. Black executives call on corporations to fight restrictive voting laws because that's what's going to help us, y'all. That's what's going to help us. Dozens of the most prominent black business leaders in America are banding together to call on companies to fight a wave of restrictive voting bills being advanced by Republicans in at least 43 states. The campaign appears to be the first time that so many powerful black executives have organized to directly call out their peers for failing to stand up for racial justice. The effort led by Kenneth Chenault, former chief executive of American Express and Kenneth Fraser. That's hilarious. They have the same first name. That's funny. The chief executive of Merck is a response to the swift passage of a Georgia law that they contend makes it harder for black people to vote. As the debate about that bill raged in recent weeks, most major corporations, including those with headquarters in Atlanta, did not take a position on the legislation. There's no middle ground here, Mr. Chenault said. You either are for more people voting or you want to suppress the vote. The executives did not criticize specific companies, but instead called on all of corporate America to publicly and directly oppose new laws that will restrict the rights of black voters and to use their clout, money and lobbyists to sway the debate with, <laughs> with lawmakers. This impacts all Americans, but we also need to acknowledge the history of voting rights for African-Americans, Mr. Chanel said. And as African-American executives in corporate America, what we were saying is that we want corporate America to understand that and we want them to work with us. The letter was signed by 72 black executives. They included Roger Ferguson, Jr., chief executive of TIAA, Melody Hobson and John Rogers Jr., the co-chief executives of Aerial Investments, Robert F. Smith, chief executive of Vista Equity Partners, and Raymond McGuire, a former Citigroup executive who was running for mayor of New York. Awesome. In the days before the Georgia law was passed, almost no major company spoke out against the legislation, which introduced strict voter identification requirements for absentee balloting, limited drop boxes, and expanded the legislature's power over elections. Big corporations based in Atlanta, including Delta Airlines, Coca-Cola, and Home Depot, offered general statements of support for voting rights, but none took a specific stance on the bills. 
and also great <laughs> great labor companies too they're really great to their workers great overall shout out to wages. delta airlines yeah shout out to delta airlines man oh man the same is true for most of the executives who signed the new letter including mr frazier and mr cheno mr frazier said he had paid only peripheral attention to the matter before the georgia <laughs> before the georgia law was passed on thursday when the law passed i started paying attention <laughs> Yeah, right. Oh, damn. You didn't give a fuck about whether or not your people were fully engaged in democracy until this specific law passed. That's great. When Mr. Frazier realized what was in the new law and that similar bills were being advanced in other states, he and Mr. Channel decided to take action. On Sunday, they began emailing and texting with a group of black executives discussing what more corporations could do. There seems to be no one speaking out, Mr. Frazier said. We thought if we spoke up, it might lead to a situation where others felt the responsibility to speak up. Among the other executives who signed the letter were Ursula Burns, a former chief executive of Xerox, Richard Parsons, a former chairman of Citigroup and chief executive of Time Warner, and Tony West, the chief legal uh, officer at Uber. The group of leaders with support from the Black Economic Alliance bought a full-page ad in the Wednesday print edition of the New York Times. The executives are hoping that big companies will help prevent dozens of similar bills in other states from becoming law. The Georgia legislature was the first one, Mr. Frazier said. If corporate America doesn't stand up, we'll get... Oh, boy. <laughs> if corporate America doesn't stand up, we'll get these laws passed in many places in this country. In 2017, Mr. Frazier was the first chief executive to publicly resign from President Donald Trump's business advisory councils after the president's equivocating response to white nationalist violence in Charlottesville, Virginia. His resignation led other chief executives to distance themselves from Mr. Trump and the advisory groups disbanded. As African-American business executives, we don't have the luxury of being bystanders to injustice, really. Really, really, really. Mr. Frazier said, we don't have the luxury of sitting on the sidelines when these kinds of injustices are happening all around us. Companies have taken stances on state legislation in recent years, often to powerful effect. In 2016, 2017, as conservatives advanced so-called bathroom bills in states including Indiana, North Carolina, Georgia, and Texas, big companies went so far as to threaten to take their business elsewhere if the laws were enacted. Those bills were never signed into law. Last year, the human rights campaign began persuading companies to sign on to a pledge that states their clear opposition to harmful legislation aimed at restricting the access of LGBTQ people in society. Dozens of major companies, including AT&T, Facebook, Nike, and Pfizer signed on. To Mr. Channel, the contrast between the business community's response to that issue and to voting restrictions that disproportionately harms Black voters was telling. You had 60 major companies, Amazon, Google, American Airlines, that signed on the statement that states a very clear opposition to harmful legislation aimed at restricting the access of LGBTQ people in society, he said. So, you know, it's bizarre that we don't have companies standing up to this. This is not new, Mr. Channel added. When it comes to race, there's different treatment. That's the reality. Activists are now calling for boycotts of Delta and Coca-Cola for their tepid engagement before the Georgia law was passed, and there are signs that other companies and sports leagues are becoming more engaged with the issue. The head of the Major League Baseball Players Association said he would look forward to a discussion about moving the All-Star game from Atlanta, where it is planned for July. And Jamie Demon, the chief executive of J.P. Morgan Chase, released a statement on Tuesday affirming his company's commitment to voting rights. Voting is fundamental to the health and future of our democracy, he said. We regularly encourage our employees to exercise the fundamental right to vote. We stand against efforts that may prevent them from being able to do so. That language echoes statements made by many big companies before the Georgia law was passed. The executives who signed the letter are likely to seek more.
people ask, what can I do? Mr. Chernow said, well, I tell you what you can do. You can publicly oppose any discriminatory legislation and all measures designed to limit Americans' ability to vote. How y'all feeling, y'all? What y'all think? It seemed like me, the, the LLC crowd, coming to say today, what y'all think? <laughs> it's always interesting to me that there's this notion that we're going to get some kind of, as you said, right, some saviors of democracy out of folks who uphold very hierarchical, essentially miniature fiefdoms of themselves through corporate power. Like, I don't know, it's, it's never anything to be expected out of them for me personally. It's just like, if we really want to talk about democracy, like the first place to begin is where people spend most of their time. And that's like, that's pretty counterintuitive to the whole notion of corporate America, right? <laughs> well, what, right. I, what I find amazing, no, no, go ahead. Go ahead, Ashley. Go ahead, Ashley, my bad. No, no, I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't on any sort of train of thought. Well, I'm just fascinated. I mean, this idea that capital is going to come to save us when capital is the thing that like undermines democracy. That's like literally the whole deal. Right. I mean, I mean, it's, it's like, incredible. Capital's whole goal is to reduce democracy as much as possible so that they could flow uninhibited by any kind of, you know, social accountability structures or anything like that you know if they could you know it's like it's like what is it who the fuck said it? i forget who said it but like the minimum wage is basically your boss telling you that if i could pay you less i would i think it's chris rock yeah, it's like if you're, if i could pay you less i would and <laughs> it's just it's incredible yeah. it's like yeah i mean just look at these different dynamics like we literally have these rules these laws put in place to try to hold them to some kind of standard and then the most subpar like substandards imaginable because you know the whole quote-unquote democratic system that we have is beholden to those corporate interests right they're all linked they're basically locked arm in arm and how they operate you know you see this in the form of subsidies and the way that taxes and things like that the structures are often you know formed to benefit them the most and it's just like yeah like you how can you ever expect the people who benefit from the most and, and undemocratic elements of this social system to become the knight in shining armor the saviors of what little democracy we do have in this fucking aberration of a system i mean it's <laughs> i mean just in general these voting laws are fucking insane and disgusting yet again it's just another way to disenfranchise black folks i mean the reality of the situation is that black people and even people of color in general were never meant to be full participants in american democracy that's just from the foundations of this country so and at every turn throughout American history, you can see the ways in which Black people have constantly been, and again, people of color have been constantly just pushed out of having access to the mechanisms and processes that structure and shape what our nation looks like and how it functions. And it's just, this is just really fucking egregious. This is super, super egregious. Like not wanting people to have food and water while waiting in long ass voting lines, not doing vote by mail when you know that Corona is very much still around, even though people in places like my fucking state, Texas, act like it isn't. And motherfuckers walking around with no type of mask on in restaurants. It's all insanity. It's all insanity. It's just this shit is driving us to the fucking brink. I mean, shit, the business interests basically have their fucking thumb on everything here because it's like COVID is bad. Like we're number one in the country right now. And we're at points where the cases are, are higher than they've been in previous months of this pandemic. 
where we mm-hmm. actually did have some kind of like shutdowns in place and restrictions on businesses and stuff. And now the fucking governor is just asking people to voluntarily, you know, create their own like restrictions and shit to try to mitigate the spread while the yeah. fucking hospitals are getting to the point where they're making people wait. Like if you don't have COVID, you're waiting hours and hours to be seen for any other kind of issues. Like I read something about a person who was having like kidney issues and they had to wait like seven hours to be seen. And there's like people on fucking gurneys fucking and stretchers in the hallways and shit. And they won't just fucking tell people, hey, you know what? You can't go to the club tonight. I'm sorry. You know, you got you to stay at home. Like they can't let people just chill the fuck out for a minute, you know, because She's basically exhausted her power. And this is our democratic governor here. You know, this ain't even just the right wing. It's the right wing that has definitely put a lot of pressure on them and not allowing them to maybe put some more restrictions in place. But at the same time, like they're not really trying to push. I'm sure she could do something more. But there's a mm-hmm. there's a whole, you know, business class interest involved there that, hey, the state's right. losing money because we can't pull in revenue through these usual streams. So just fucking take the risk. And it's like, well, the risk is really causing a lot of great harm. So at a point like we're about to be at a critical mass of not being able to account for shit, the loss of life that this could result in. And what are you going to do then when the economy doesn't have enough workers to really be able to bounce back from this shit? I mean, it's already being felt. Tons of people can't find people to fill in roles that people don't want to work, like line chefs and shit like that. So what's the end game here if you're not willing to actually do something to mitigate the spread of the virus? Yeah. Yeah, it's ridiculous, man. And the fact that these people really think that these corporations, that corporations give a fuck about democracy. I mean, businesses, if you're a worker and you've ever been in a workplace, that a business is nothing more than a, it's something that this pragmatist philosopher, Elizabeth Anderson, is something she wrote about in her book, Private Government. All workplaces and all businesses are just fucking tyrannies in the perspective of the worker. You know what I mean? They're totally non-democratic or actively anti-democratic as we've seen with Amazon's moves with the unionization. So the idea that they think that people would give a fuck about people of color not being able to be a part of democracy is insane. Capital erodes democracy. Look at the pandemic, right? That is anti-democratic. Opening up what happened with our fucking idiot governor here in Texas, fucking Greg Abbott, nut job, Letting businesses run at full capacity because you care more about the market, because you care more about the profit margin. You know what I mean? While people are dying, getting sick, getting all sorts of complications. There was a report I saw that people who contracted COVID six months down the line, they started having mental health issues. I mean, it's just I mean, it, it, all sorts of shit, right? That is anti-democrat. That is anti-democracy. You know, when you have a real democracy, you would care about investing in the health and the well-being of the society, of the community, of your workers, right? You would care about what affects the most vulnerable of your society. But that's just, that's not what we have. In service of capital, we're willing to let tons and tons of fucking people die, horrendous deaths, just to make the market happy. It's a blood sacrifice. That's what this shit is. It's a blood sacrifice to the fucking you know, Mammon, you know what I mean? The Babylonian God of money or some shit. That's fucking capitalism to me. It's just, it's just, you, you, we're just feeding our kids, you know, feeding our loved ones to this fucking thing. You know, I've seen that. I've, I'm a healthcare worker. I've seen families who cannot, they have to grieve their loved one outside. You know what I'm saying? Outside of the room of the patient, looking at them, crying, grieving, 
because their loved one just, just fucking died. I've seen it. I've seen someone who was on a ventilator and they got to, and then I come back 20, 30 minutes later, they're off of it because they're dead. I've seen it. And this is what we're allowing the market the capital to do to us. This is the sort of sh shit that you get, the invasion that you get on your society, on your culture, when you let the merchants, right, control everything. The most ancient philosophy, the most ancient wisdom, the ancient religions, they always told us never let the merchants run your fucking society. And this is what we get. This is what we get, you know, anti-democratic bullshit and disease. Yeah. And that being said, this is a global pandemic and lives will be lost regardless. But we are still going through this now in 2021. It's April. Worst cases in the world, an outrageous death toll. And it's because we specifically put capital and individualism before the well being of citizens. I think that's worth noting. Like, there are places where this has been handled better. This isn't like a foregone conclusion and it's inevitable what's happening to us right now. You know, like the government has specifically handled this in a very, very improper way. When around the world, health of people has been put as the foremost priority. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I forgot who, who what country it was. I think it was Australia. They had already like opened up. And they were like getting ready to have concerts and shit. Oh my God. Yeah. Australia is like yeah. fine now. They were having some things in individual cities, but like as a whole, it's just back to normal. They had intermittent shutdowns. And it's also interesting here, going off what you said, Glenn, in, in Michigan, you have Governor Whitmer. And here in Maryland, we have Larry Hogan, who's like a, a centrist Republican. And, you know, it's a pretty blue state as far as presidential elections are concerned. And then we have Joe Biden and VP Harris. And I mean, they're still not, they were fine with blaming Republicans for the past year on their handling of the situation. And here we are, and there's nothing better going on. It's to the point where they would rather not continue to lose money and hurt the economy, so to speak and sacrificing workers instead. Oh yeah, it's absolutely wild. They're completely banking on the vaccine as their shield to be like, but look, we got a vaccine rollout. I was like, that shit was coming anyway. Like you didn't really have any say in the matter if that was gonna happen or not. More so like the thing you can control is the fact that you can kind of distribute things and kind of take credit for like anything that might be actually having some kind of benefit to getting people to a point where they can be more immune to this shit. But ultimately those vaccines were being developed previous to the administration taking place. And as far as like the things they can really do to try to mitigate spread, they haven't done any of that. It, down to the point that they even reduced the fucking, the one monetary payment they agreed to give people, they reduced it. And if you really want to keep people from going out and spreading, then make it so people don't have to do as much to meet their survival needs, you know, make it so that people can actually have some sort of, you know, comforts at home so they don't have to keep going out into the world to take care of all their needs and you know reduce the amount of people that actually have to be because obviously their jobs are going to have to be performed in order to maintain the different systems of society and shit of you know the different cities and shit we all live in but i mean we literally have to the point where like fast food workers to your local fucking walmart 
greeter are still working every damn day without any real drop in you know productive capacity on that front because we live in a you know very capitalist society that is really predicated on making money and they'll as they were trying to say in the beginning put your grandma on the altar of capital you know what does it matter if some people who've outlived their servile worth to the system were to pass in order to maintain the gears you know like they've been making that very clear all year round and even in shifting from one administration to the next yeah in texas yeah the lieutenant governor dan patrick our grandparents are more than willing to die for the market that's essentially (laughs) what he said i was like this is some psychopathic shit this is some psychopathic shit i mean i mean you saw that's how they've been operating yeah I mean, it's, man, it's just a lot, bro. <laughs> yeah, be pretty yeah th- those are the contradictions I really want people to grapple on to personally. Like, if you could really, like, from the Texas to, you know, down in Jackson, the situation with the water and the electric grid, and we all had that mm-hmm. big freeze, like, yep. there's just been so many instances. I mean, to the pandemic as a whole, right? There's been so many instances of the state and government and these systems that are supposed to help to maintain our livelihood, which is why we pay all these taxes, which is why we have such a bloated military, you know, all these factors that are supposed to be keeping us safe. They don't give a fuck when we actually die. So why are we still trying to rely on these systems and not just building our own that actually account for the livelihood and well-being of the citizens that are buying into that system? You know, like if people are going to be a part of some kind of, you know, community led initiative, some kind of infrastructure that's going to be about meeting our needs. We should have a say in, you know, how we organize ourselves when crisis strikes so that we can make sure that, you know, people who definitely are being impacted by a crisis can have some support, some kind of infrastructure that is there to take care of people. I mean, there's no reason why it should be Oh, but Glenn, but Glenn, we, not everybody <laughs> can have a say. Not everybody can have a say because, you know, some people are stupid and some people have lower <laughs> IQ levels. This is just the unfortunate truth, Glenn. But according to data and studies and the bell curve, black people have lower IQ levels. Now, that's not their fault. But that's the truth. So why will we allow them to vote? We only want high information, high IQ, politically engaged people to vote. Come on now. Come on. Yeah, it's completely absurd. (laughs) (laughs) That's the sort of thinking, man. And and then it's crazy because people are hoping that Again, like we were talking about before, hoping that corporations are going to come to save the day when the state fails. You know what I mean? Pure neoliberal logic, you know, pure anti-politics, right? Anti-political thinking, Mm -hmm. what Chomsky talks about, right? Is like all the failures are always on government, but we always ignore corporate or or private power, Mm -hmm. right? In any of these issues. Now, don't get me wrong. I do feel like on this episode, we do need to go just full anarchist here and just be like, fucking, just abolish the fucking state. Because it's just like what you said, Glenn, our labor pays into this tax system. Through our labor, we generate all this revenue that should be used to create structures and institutions and services that enhance our quality of living. But that is not what we're seeing. We're seeing infrastructure fall. It, you know, everything has been structured, right? To the minimum wage, to the fact that right. um, there, there's no cap on maximum earnings or anything. These things mm-hmm. have been structured in a way where even the people who are just privately. There's no tax on like inheritance. 
Yeah, no tax on inheritance. Yeah, exactly. There's no inheritance tax. There's barely a tax on wealth, you know, like, so yeah. the people who are just siphoning all the money to the top, those private interests that like you're talking about, that private power, things are also taken away from the potentiality that could be going into developing a strong infrastructure. You know, all of our different infrastructural needs would no doubt costs will be covered if we didn't funnel money into national defense, as they put it. And, you know, the private structures that allow these different business interests to become so massive, you know, they wouldn't be so massive if we had different incentive structures. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. And and we could be doing so much to increase our well-being, but it's just like when you look at everything, infrastructures falling the fuck apart, problems that could be easily solved, easily solved. I mean, we could solve the global water crisis. I forgot the amount of money that would take. I think it was like three billion dollars that could literally fix the global water crisis. I mean, we have the capabilities to fix these things. Right. We have the wealth. We have the prosperity. We have the technology. We have the scientific know how and knowledge to be able to fix all of these issues. You know what I'm saying? I'm not saying that we're in a place of being capable of being in a fucking utopia, but I do believe that we could get to a place of post scarcity. You know what I mean? But it's just like we have this fucking middleman, the fucking state and its agenda essentially going against our needs and our will all the time, 24 seven. You know what I mean? I mean, what else do we have to say that you have to get rid of the fucking state? You know, but of course you can't tell this to right wingers. Of course you can't tell this to liberals. There are a lot of people on the left that you can't tell this shit because they're still fucking statists. It doesn't work. (laughs) It does not work. The nation state is going to fail us time and time again. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't don't know. It's just all very fucking, (sighs) very fucking infuriating. Glenn, Ashley, did y'all have any closing comments before we jump to the next segment? No. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we're just going to continue to, you know, try to be positive, work in our communities, support each other, move forward, do the best we can in our lives and those around us. Yep. Yeah, that's all we can do. Well, we're going in this on a positive note, y'all. We are going to go to the next segment, Black Joy. So, Glenn, Ashley, y'all sound off on what has been giving y'all joy this week and been holding y'all through this, you know, more layers of disaster. Okay, so I'm always going off about the weather. And (laughs) it's spring, so just enjoying time outside, getting my first vaccine shot tomorrow. That's exciting. We were talking about that a little bit pre-pod. We're looking forward to getting vaccinated and loved ones getting vaccinated. And unfortunately, not to get negative again, but like, I mean, realistically, are we going to reach a vaccination point that is adequate for what we're trying to do nationally? I don't think so. But what I'm trying to focus on is just my family and my loved ones and people around me, people that are at high risk, getting vaccinated and being a little bit more safe continuing forward into the year. And I think that's it. For me, yeah, also, I just got vaccinated yesterday, first dose. (laughs) That's always... You know, that's a little bit of a weight off the chest a little bit. But yeah, as far as like things, as kind of like what Ashley said, weather's been breaking. I just moved into a new place and that's been nice getting that arranged and actually having some space because my last place was real, real cramped. It was not very nice. And yeah, just getting back into the game because like this last, I don't, I don't really want to call it a game, but getting back out there and organizing and getting my head on around what can be, you know, engaged with for the year 
because this this last couple months have definitely been very isolating with the cold weather months and just the you know consistent surge and spread of the virus just trying to stay safe so now that things seem like there's some semblance of being able to get back engaged in in in-person spaces and also just engaging with some some stuff that's not centered around organizing being able to do some you know some outdoor activities and stuff with the family and stuff things to look forward to and definitely hopefully will help to revitalize the spirit a little bit going into this next year absolutely yeah everybody talked about the weather it's the same thing here it's been beautiful here in texas i'm not gonna lie it's been good for your boys mental health looking at all the flourishing green trees i think for me i'm about to get into house plants so i can go like full like eco commie and just have a bunch <laughs> yes, of house plants in my room yeah mm-hmm. i'm planning to grow i don't know what to grow yet i'm planning to grow like lavender I thought about freaking, what is it called? Aloe vera, having an aloe vera plant, but I heard that gets kind of big. I don't like, I don't want to have to buy like a pot. Like I want to grow them out of like cool shit, like glass bottles and glass jars and shit. You know, get on my hipster bougie type. (laughs) But yeah, I'm thinking about that. What else? That's really about it, man. That's really about it. Just the weather and thinking about getting into house plants and thankful to have a workplace that's not a fucking total war zone even though it's still wage slavery and it is what it is but yeah that's been about it but y'all thank you so much for listening to this episode 10 episodes y'all 10 episodes we official 10 episodes of a thousand cuts thank you thank you thank you we are excited to have the eco update with comrade ashley y'all so please like please rate please comment please just engage with us on twitter on Instagram, all the platforms that we have. We are so thankful for any support, all the retweets, all the love, all the listens. Y'all, please, please just engage with us. Uh, we're going to try to keep cranking these out. We're going to try to keep getting, you know, I know we're trying to get more Patreon content out there. We're a bit slow on that because it just takes time to coordinate all of us and get the research done for specific topics. Because again, want to make sure we're bringing out quality stuff so please please work with us on that we thank you for all of our patrons but again this has been a thousand cuts of bsa podcast i'm your host demetrius here with my comrades and co-hosts glenn and ashley we will see y'all next time peace take care solidarity